Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Uh, We are continuing our look at the um, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We're in Matthew 6, and and if you remember from yesterday, I I did the first four verses and then skipped 5 through 15 and then did 16 to 18. So today we're going to go back and catch um, the Lord's Prayer, which is in that middle piece um, that I skipped over. I, I did. I, I was negligent yesterday in in saying something, and, and that is the most important words in those actually uh, in in all these that um, these three what they're called pericopes. So the, they're segments of text, and the the scholarly word for that is a pericope. And so you break it into these these um, chunks that that have to that have uh, to do with a particular topic and so the first one was giving to the needy the second one yesterday was fasting today it's the lord's prayer and so the the important thing that i forgot to mention yesterday was in each of these three pericopes it it they'll begin with things like this when you give to the needy when you pray and when you fast the expectation that Jesus has is you will do these things. We will do these things. This is the, it, it, when you do this implies you're gonna, you should. And, I, and I'm pretty good about um, praying and, and I'm decent about giving to the needy. I really am not very good at fasting. It, it is not my forte in, in spite of the fact that Jesus says when you fast. Um, so he, he has a huge expectation that we're going to do these things. These should be the contours of the um, Christian life. If you want some uh, a good recommendation for um, for for the the disciplines of the Christian life, then I, I would highly recommend a book that I read like a million years ago now, um, and it and it's called The Celebration of Discipline. Um, which is, it's a very ironic title, obviously, um, but it's an excellent book because it talks about the disciplines themselves and then breaks it down to make it easy to understand these things. Uh, it, it's a wonderful book. Uh, it's by a guy named Richard Foster, who's a Quaker. Um, and then there's another book. Let me look it up real quick while I'm talking. Uh, it's, it's by Dallas Willard. Uh, the Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. And if you don't know Dallas Willard, I highly recommend uh, anything Dallas Willard ever did. He, he was excellent. He was a philosopher and a, a, a Christian, a very solid Christian, uh, did a lot of consulting and things like that. But but he, in fact, you know, a couple, um, I've mentioned in the last couple of days, I've mentioned the Great Commission from Matthew 28 to go into the, all the world, uh, bapt, um, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. And he said that in his consulting work, what he would do is he would go out and, and he would say, uh, all right, show me what you got. Show me where you are right now to churches. And they would say, this is how we're making disciples and all that. And he said, he said every single time, everybody had a strategy of some sort for making disciples. Um, and, and then first you got to determine what the characteristics of a disciple are, and that's part of the disciplines, is these are the characteristics of, of a disciple, is they practice the disciplines that Jesus says when you do this. So Willard said, everybody seemed to have that. He said, but he said not once in all his consulting work when he said, what's your strategy for teaching people to obey everything that Jesus commanded? He said that he always just got a blank stare. 
that nobody ever had a strategy for that, and it just pierced me to the heart, right? The, the other time that I've been cut like that was a, a guy who ended up being a friend of mine. He's dead now, but at a clergy conference one time, he was speaking to us, and he, and he, he knew who we are, right? So he asked the question, how many of you have not had a day off in the last six months? And everybody there kind of proudly, actually, raised our hands and he said okay put your hands down now how many of you have committed adultery in the last six months and everybody was really like just appalled that he would ask the question and he said well i just wondered because they come from the same set of 10 keep the sabbath is actually a commandment too and so it was it was well stated and and we were all guilty of failing to keep the sabbath by the way not adultery if there were people there who were guilty of adultery, that was unknown to me. <laughs> At any rate, so I wanted to make that point, and, and here we start with, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What Jesus is, is holding up in all these things is, is that let your acts of devotion— be done to the one who they're aimed at. And then he's basically saying, you can tell who these other people are aiming at because they're getting attention. And that's what they actually want, is attention. They, they want their religious things to be seen by other people. That's their, their main audience is people. They want people to think well of them. They want them to think, well, he's a pious, devout person. And so they do these things in order to gain attention and applause from the crowds. And Jesus says, don't be like that. And he calls them one simple thing, hypocrites. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. So he's calling them out for what they are. They're practicing their religion in public, but it's not who they really are. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, they make a good show, but that, but I know better. That's not who they are. And, he, and later in Matthew, we're going to see it again and again and again. He's going to name specifically who these hypocrites are in that last week of his life. He's going to call them out, not by name, but by class. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And so he's talking specifically about them, but early in the ministry, he's not calling them out in that, that direct way, although it, you should be easy to identify yourself, right, if this is who you are. If you're standing on a street corner and you're praying and, and doing what they say, what he's saying here, if you do the things he says, it's pretty easy to figure out who you are, right? If you're doing these things, then he says you're a hypocrite. That's who you are. You, you don't think so? I got your number, you know, and, and, and God does have our number. He knows who we are. We can't hide from God. It's not possible to do that. But, but Jesus says, he makes it really simple. No, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, does that mean that, that all your prayer life needs to be in a closet somewhere? You need to be, and, and he, what he means is just be away by yourself. It'd be you and the Father together. Does that mean that we shouldn't pray in church? Does that mean at prayer meetings nobody should pray? No. It just means that, that it needs to be sincere. I, I have two examples. There was a guy 
this this was one of the funniest things that I think ever happened to me, and, and it was just God's sense of humor. It, when I was at Pauly's Island, when I was first there, the first three or four years, I, everybody there seemed to have the gift of tongues, right? And so I wanted that because I felt like I was less than them. Um, but I had a good friend who said, John, you don't need it. You pray beautifully. There's there's no reason. You're you're eloquent. There's no reason for you to to want that. But I did, right? So because everybody else had it. So <laughs> got to keep up with the Joneses in everything. So uh, there was there was a guy. He was an older man. He came to the Wednesday service, the healing service, and, and in that service we had open prayer time. Unlike Sunday morning, we really didn't have you know the congregation didn't pray. Um, but but on Wednesdays it was open prayer time during the the that part of the service, and so this guy would compose prayers, and he'd bring these things to the Wednesday service, and he would wait until he was sure everybody else had gone, but before the leader of the service could actually kind of wrap up the prayers. He he had good timing. I'll give him that. He had a lot of practice, but but he would compose these things and then. He he clearly wanted people to applaud him. <laughs> I mean, there was no question that's what he wanted, um, and and everybody knew it, you know. But and and his prayers were eloquent. I'll give him a lot of credit for it. But one day, I happened to be leading the service, and this guy prayed. It was right after an election, or right before an election. I don't remember what it was, and he prayed a completely political prayer. I mean, the the whole thing was just straight up political, and we didn't do that. That was not who we were. We didn't talk about politics from the pulpit. We didn't talk about it anywhere, you know, in, in services or anything like that. And so he did this, and I'm just furious. And I'm up front, and, I, and I'm just up there, and I'm waiting for him to finish this prayer because I'm going to stomp all over it, right, with my own prayer. Well, when he finished, I, I gritted my teeth, and I got ready to pray, and I opened my mouth, and I have no earthly idea what came out. It was the funniest thing that I've ever seen in my life. It was like God said, uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> nope, nope, not those words, John. Those are not coming out. Something else is. And so the first time that I ever prayed in tongues was because God wouldn't let me pray what I wanted to pray. <laughs> it, it was hilarious, I'm telling you. But but that guy would be one of those people who I would think would be like this. And then there was another guy. that There were a group of us that prayed together pretty regularly um, over something very specific, and, and this guy would pray, and he would just go on and on and on, and he would tell the Lord the strategy he needed to use to bring the thing we were praying for into being and all this kind of stuff. And, and I was tasked typically with wrapping up this, this call. And so I would just pray, Lord, you're sovereign in all things. You know what's required. I have no earthly idea what, how to fight a heavenly spiritual battle. I have no earthly idea. The only way I know to fight it is to say I trust you and that you'll bring it to pass in your time and in your way. And and people then began to send me messages saying, you know, those, you, your prayers are so simple, but they're so powerful. And it's just because I trust God, right? I, I don't have to be that guy who just piles up words to do this. And it just drove me crazy. And so I've seen this, and I'm sure you've seen it too by being in different places. Um, but it, it, So it's not that we're not supposed to pray in public, but, but we're not supposed—the goal is not to draw attention to ourselves. It's certainly not to tell God how to do things. I don't. He, he doesn't need me to be his strategy guy. So at any rate, so that that's my my thoughts on what that means to do these things in secret. There, Jesus is not saying that as a principle you should never do things, your your religious devotional acts in a way that 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 is completely private. He's not saying that's the principle, 
No, what he's saying is don't be like these people. And in contrast to them, do it this way. But but it's not a principle that you can only pray at home in your room by yourself. It's not, not a principle that nobody can ever know what you give and do for charity. It's not a principle that, that nobody can know that you're fasting. No, it, but but don't do it as an act of, uh, of attention-seeking, is what Jesus is saying. And then he goes on to this other thing I just mentioned a second ago. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words, like that guy I told you about. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. The, the biggest thing probably in my life that I've ever really sort of gotten right, maybe, not, not just theologically, but, but also in life, it is the idea that God's sovereign over all things and that, that things don't surprise him and that he's capable of doing anything. But at the same time, I, it's the humility of saying, Lord, I have no earthly idea what's best in any given situation. I really don't. If you ask me to pray for you, I'm going to pray for you. I'm, if you say, John, would you pray for my healing? The answer is absolutely. I'm going to pray for your healing because that's what I want. I want, I want to see God do this thing. But at the end of the day, if you don't get healed, I'm not going to be mad at God. And I'm not going to think that I failed because I did what I said that I would do. But I leave it with him. I leave the outcome to him. I don't pray if it be your will. I, I'm, I'm very clear that, Lord, what I want is for you to heal this person. But at the end of the day, that what I know is, is that I have to trust God's sovereignty in all things, that, that he knows what's good in ways that I don't. I mean, I've deeply imbibed Job, I think, and Job's trust in God that no matter what happened, he finally understood that it's good, even though I can't see it that way, even it, even if it doesn't feel like it's good to me in the moment. I've learned by, by living a long time, <laughs> frankly, that that it, God's good, and so if I pray and if I'm his child, then even when bad things happen, then then I can have the confidence that it's God's will, and therefore it's a good thing. And, and that is, is the reason that I don't feel the necessity of piling up many words when I pray, I, because I really do know that God knows what I need before I ask, and so I'm just going to ask in a point-blank way. I'm not going to convince him that this is what he really needs to do. I'm not going to convince him that, that I know what's best, because the reality is I don't. Because life is this enormous tapestry that, that we only see the back of. We think we're seeing the front of it, where the pattern is, but we're really only seeing the back of it, where all the thread and the yarn is. And from the back, you can't see what the pattern on the front side is. It's only later that we're going to be able to see that tapestry the right way. Right now, we see all these things, and we think we discern a pattern, and we, dis- we know what's best. And, and the reality is we just don't. I have no idea how God's going to use difficult things in my life. I trust him for that. And, and to me, that, that's the way that, that I've just learned to pray, is by beginning with the idea that God's sovereign in all things, and that all things work together for good for those who know him and are called according to his purposes. I believe that. I believe it with all my heart. And that's how I pray. And I'm not saying that, that I'm great. I'm saying it may be the only thing I actually get right in life. I don't pray enough. I'll acknowledge that. But 
But everything really begins with the humility of standing before a holy God and, and doing everything for an audience of one and understanding who that audience is. But prayer is one of those things, I think, where, where we, we really do um, need to just rest in the sovereignty of God when we come into his presence and when we pray. It, it's just that simple. Gentiles, in that context that Jesus says, don't be like the Gentiles, that, that, think about Elijah and the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. That's a perfect example of the way that Gentiles would pray. The goal of, of prayer in, in those other religious systems is to convince the gods one way or another to do something, to do what you want them to do. And so you see them there cutting themselves and screaming and dancing around and all this other kind of stuff, and none of that's necessary. Elijah just says, all right, let's get this done. And he does, you know, and that and Baal worship, all these other things require a lot of ritual in the prayer that that will do this. And if you watch pagan prayer, if you watch all kinds of different when I say pagan, I just mean non-Christian. By the way, that's not a value judgment, although anything that's non-Christian is by nature pagan. Um, You'll see all this ritual stuff that has to accompany prayer. And Jesus says, don't be like that. This is real simple. It's a conversation between you and your Father, your Father who knows what you need before you even ask. If we approach God with that attitude in our hearts, then, then we'll pray right, and we don't have to worry about it, whether we're in public or whether we're at home in our room. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.